we're continuing down the path of criminalization when the people of the country are telling elected officials and doing things locally to decriminalize, they're going in the complete opposite direction. It's time for those in Congress to be changed. That's one of the problems with the siloing of, you know, the drug users union movement and the sex workers rights movement. But it isn't just about those two movements coming together. It's about those two movements coming together and having a broader viewpoint. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Hello, everybody. You're listening to Narcotica, and I'm one of your co-hosts, Zach Siegel. We are a totally listener-funded program. And if you like what we do and want to keep us ad-free and keep mattress advertisements out of your eardrums, then hit us up on patreon.com and donate. A couple bucks can go a long way. We super appreciate you for listening and supporting us. So let's get on with the show. In this show, we like to reference the past. We often say things like, cultures and civilizations going back millennia have pursued mind-altering substances. And that's true. In 3400 BC, the Sumerians called poppy plants the joy plants. But there is something else common to every culture and nation-state, something perhaps even more fundamental to humanity than substance use. The world's so-called oldest profession, sex work, otherwise known by its criminalized term, prostitution. But that word, prostitution, has a similar ring to a term like drug abuse. It just has too much baggage and implies something wrong is taking place. So I'm going to stick with sex work for this episode. I'm Zach Siegel, and you're listening to Narcotica. Today's episode is about sex work and harm reduction and how sex worker organizing has actually put wind in the sails of harm reduction policy making. We'll talk about the many common causes of drug users and sex workers and how they're organizing, mostly at the intersection of draconian and brute force policing, is getting more credence these days. We're incredibly lucky to have two sex workers, organizers, and I mean this in no pejorative manner, policy wonks. I'm very excited to introduce listeners to Tamika Spellman and Katie Simon. They graciously walked us through their organizing strategies and their visions for a world where their work is protected from cops and treated with the dignity it deserves. All right, let's roll that interview. I'm Zachary Siegel, beaming to you from Chicago, and you're listening to Narcotica. Our guests today are Katie Simon and Tamika Spellman. 
Katie is a leadership team member and sex worker liaison for Urban Survivors Union, the American National Drug Users Union, founding co-organizer and executive director of Whose Corner Is It Anyway? A harm reduction, mutual aid, political education, and organizing group by and for low-income street sex workers. Tamika is from Washington, D.C., and she's the Policy and Community Engagement Manager of HIPS, which stands for Honoring Individual Power and Strength, which is a Washington, D.C.-based organization advocating for the rights and health of people impacted by drug use and sex work. Katie and Tamika, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Yeah, this is really exciting. And with me today is my co-host, Troy Farah. Troy, what's up? Hey, how's it going? And Chris Muraff will, I think, be joining us. He'll be dropping in. Chris, uh, you know, he's on the streets somewhere, but he'll he'll drop in soon. So let's get this started. I think you might be wondering why a show about drugs primarily is interested in talking about sex work. And I think the most obvious and perhaps visible intersection of these two communities is harm reduction. And that's something that listeners of this show obviously are familiar with. And, and I think that'll kind of be the, the bedrock of this conversation of, of how harm reduction services and organizing, uh, really overlaps with with sex worker and and drug using communities and uh tamika and katie you know i think maybe just to start and either one of you could kind of take the ball here how'd you land in this role of being politically active of being organizers of being educators of being harm reductionists like where did it all begin for you i would say it began with my lived experience as a sex worker for four decades you know and a good two and a half of those i spent as a uh you know i had chaotic drug use in my life and when i was introduced to hips in 1993 that harm reduction that they were doing with sex workers was what brought the the thought of, well, if this works with sex work, then maybe this could work with my drug use because I didn't know harm reduction at that time uh, uh, was applied to drug use. You know, HIPS also introduced that to me because they brought out safer smoking supplies at one point, you know, until they got caught. (laughs) But um, my lived experience is what brings me to this organizing realm because I've seen how the negative effects of criminality plays on both drug users and sex workers. You know, um, the war on drugs has been a monumental failure. That goes without saying. You know, it has no end point. It's still going. It's spent trillions of dollars. And there's no end in sight. You know, it could easily become a hundred years war if it weren't for people like myself and Katie stepping in to tell people from our side of the coin, 
so I what I became a, a sex worker and a user of criminalized drugs very early on in my life um, from the time I was 19, uh, later than some, certainly. But, you know, the beginning of my young adulthood, certainly. Um, and at that point, you know, and I had always been very uh, likely to politicize any element of my life. Uh, you know, I was in, you know, before I was really introduced to radical movements, I was in the queer youth movement, for example, you know, any neoliberal movement I could find. Um, and I looked around, you know, I looked for a way to to politicize my experience. Um, and I was really, you know, and I, I was, uh, I was um, shadowing forums like Blue Light and Arrowhead. <laughs> because that was what I knew of harm reduction at the time. Um, and I was, you know, gobbling down books like Whores and Other Feminists and the Sex Work Anthology, you know, never really, I'm never really connecting to any actual organizers in either movement. And at one point I felt like I had to take a fork in the road, unfortunately, because these movements weren't really working in alignment with each other. I was lucky enough to get into an organization called Arise for Social Justice in Springfield, Massachusetts. Um, it was a multi-issue, low-income rights organization uh, that had been around since the 80s. And what they were doing was uh, that I was a part of was called the WISE campaign, Women in Support of Each Other. And in that campaign, uh, which was mostly we were working on stopping the building of a new women's jail, an unfortunately unsuccessful campaign, but I learned so much about prison abolition from it. But we were also trying to de facto decriminalize prostitution in Springfield. And we were also discussing the decriminalization of drugs and working against diversion programs. Um, it was very, very forward for its time. Um, however, uh, that, like, as I said, then though, I, I got to this fork in the road where I was like, am I in harm reduction or am I in sex workers rights? Because unfortunately the sex workers rights of the nineties and the early aughts was a very sanitized, whitewashed middle-class movement. It was all about, you know, we deserve rights because we are middle-class citizens because sex work is a healing art. Um, it wasn't about, you know, what I usually like to say is, do miners have to sing pans to the joys of mining in order to have labor rights? No, they don't. But in the 90s and early aughts, that's what it seemed to be like in sex work. Like, you had to be middle class in order to represent sex workers. Like, the drug-using sex workers, street-based sex workers, poor sex workers, we were all kind of swept under the rug. Um and seen as, you know, this unfortunate minority that didn't really represent the normal functional sex worker. Um, so there was a part of me that was reluctant to join the sex workers' rights movement. But on the other hand, the harm reduction movement seemed to me to be a really like a white male bastion. I remember the first uh, drug users union meeting I ever attended. And, and thank God, you know, and I still really respect this work, you know, um, one of the first incarnations of the Springfield Users Union. And I stepped into a room, you know, this 20-year-old girl, and I was surrounded by 40-year-old men. Um, and so I kind of walked right out. And so then what happened is I, what I sort of became was this bridge 
uh, from the sex workers' rights movement to a harm reduction ethos, right? Um, because of this respectability politics within the sex workers' rights movement, which would have drug-using sex workers be a footnote, a non-entity. Um, and so I spent many, many years doing that. Um, and then recently, you know, as harm reduction and drug users union movements began to really evolve, I stepped back into harm reduction movements and drug users union movements. And I found that the work that I was doing, trying to bring a harm reduction ethos into sex workers' rights movements, there was really a lot of space for the converse of that, for being a bridge of, you know, bringing a sex workers' rights ethos into harm reduction and drug users' union movements. Because unfortunately, as, you know, harm reduction became more mainstream, entered the mainstream discourse, became more professionalized, you know, um, you know, who would have thought uh, a decade ago that suddenly there would be 30 million on the table of, fed for, of federal money for harm reduction, right? Um, and that every single organization was looking to get a penny of it. Um, and there were a lot of uh, organizations in harm reduction that were uh, adopting an anti-trafficking hysteria approach and were worried about really taking on the issue of sex work. There are a lot of harm reduction and drug users organizations that just didn't really get sex work because unfortunately, you know, public health is, you know, which and harm reduction is very much a part of public health. Public health is just really all about the white male standard as the standard of health. Um, and sex work has been an economic survival strategy for people who use drugs who do not follow the white male drug user narrative. Um, so now I kind of feel like my role as the converse is to like bring a sex work, bring the perspective of drug using sex workers into harm reduction. And that's what I feel I've been doing by leading this loose coalition of sex worker organizers who also work in harm reduction and drug users union movements in Urban Survivors Union with our sex worker organizing team. Wow, thank you. That's all really great background. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, you know, some of the parallels that we see with drugs and sex work in the media, uh, you know, they're both totally rife with totally bogus stories, misinformation and fear mongering. Um, you know, narratively speaking, cops and law enforcement are usually quoted as experts without a lot of pushback from the media. Um, what are some of the most egregious myths out there uh, with, with regards to sex work that, you know, won't seem to die? One, one that comes to mind is this notion that all sex workers are victims of trafficking, which, of course, is an unfortunate reality. But it also seems to totally negate the agency and dignity of sex workers. It really does because they, they vilify us in, in every aspect of life. You know, I'm a parent. If... I divulged that I was a parent, they probably would have taken my kids from me or looked at how they could. You know, that doesn't make me a bad parent because I'm a sex worker. You know, it, it, it's the same thing when it comes to people who use drugs. I had to get one of our council members told about that. He said, well, we were um, working on the drug paraphernalia decrime bill and he was saying, well, what about parents that leave those things out that makes them bad parents, this, that, to the third? I was like, well, wait a minute. There are people that have never used drugs in their life that have fucked up some kids. So you cannot say that you, 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 your, your 
stereotyping people. You can't say that because okay. it's not always true. You have to take it as an individual case by case. I've been a great parent. My kids finished college before I did. You know, I've always been there for my kids. I, I, I traveled a lot. You know, I, I'd be touring sex work, doing things, and you know, but I always took care of them. And when I was needed as an in-person parent, I took my ass there, stayed until the problem was corrected, and then I would go on back about my life. But my kids were well taken care of. You know, and at no point did I ever jeopardize them. But this is one of the things that they they tend to, to try to push a narrative around is that we're bad parents, that we jeopardize our kids' safety, that we're going to make them into us. Neither one of my kids do sex work, but they know that I do. I didn't feel like I had a need to hide the truth from them. You know, but then there are other things that they'll say about us, like, <laughs> we're thieves. Everybody is going to get robbed. You know, we're, 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 we're violent. I'm not violent, but I've had a lot of violence happen to me. You know, and then that conversation around traffic. You know, if you're not a part of our world, you would not understand so you can't just label everybody a trafficker. There's a difference in between what a pimp broker would be or a madam as opposed to someone that is trafficking me. You know, and they don't understand that nuance in the situation, but you don't give us the opportunity to tell you if that was a problem. You come in and you just throw these huge nets and criminalize everyone when that is not the solution to the problem. I don't have that issue. So why am I being arrested and jailed? for trying to survive. for trying to provide. I've been taking care of my mother since my father died. How is that fair to me that I can't get a living wage job because number one, I'm black and I'm transgender. It has not been easy to me. I have been one of the most marginalized of all sex workers. Yeah. And now I have this platform. I'm going to run with the damn ball as far as I can. I'm going to make sure that I touch as many people's hearts to let them know, hey, y'all doing shit wrong. I think one of the many myths that you uh, touched on, and I think that Tamika touched on by discussing the issue of nuance and the lack of it, is this idea that there's this straight binary between trafficking and consensual sex work, right? Um, is there... <sighs> Just because, so it's like, it's just like saying that just because labor exploitation exists, all labor is somehow coercive. Well, which it is because it's all labor under capitalism, right? Yeah. There is a spectrum of choice and coercion in every single employment decision anybody makes. Um, but the problem is that you create an environment that's rife for trafficking whenever criminalization intensifies. Um, so as an example of this, when we saw when we were hit by that one two shot in 2018, when SESTA FOSTA passed and all of those platforms shuttered and then Backpage went down, um, what happened, you know, what happened was consensual, quote unquote, consensual sex workers suffered. But what also happened is consensual sex workers became vulnerable to being trafficked, because if you don't have those tools, 
in order to to be an independent sex worker, if you don't have like five, you know, at, at beforehand, anybody who had five dollars to rub together, at least outside of major cities, could go on Backpage and do advertisement for themselves. Now you had people who needed to find third parties. And every site of vulnerability is a potential site of violence. And that's what you had when you had intensifying criminalization. You had an incredible site of vulnerability. So what I saw were people who, you know, just a couple of weeks before were doing great. I mean, or, or even just doing passively, you know, keeping their heads above water, posting on Backpage. Now suddenly they were looking for third parties who could potentially abuse them to procure clients for them, right? Um, or simply they weren't making enough money anymore. And so they, you know, I knew, I knew um, so, uh, two women who worked together who in the space of two weeks after Backpage went down, they lost the motel room they were living in for lack of money to keep it up. They lost, you know, they lost the car that they were driving because they just couldn't afford the gas. They couldn't afford it to maintain it. Um, and so, and they got arrested in short order by going back to their hometown where they were too well known. And what happened was the one who was able to bail herself out had to go to her abusive boyfriend to then allow him to give her rides to potential calls. And there you have it, you know, um, a law that was supposed to, quote, protect people from trafficking, put somebody who was a trafficking survivor, now a consensual sex worker, back into a trafficking situation. Um, what hurts consensual sex workers will always hurt people who are in coercive situations even more. Like the, those interests are not diametrically opposed. The interests of uh, people who are coerced and sex workers who are working consensually. Sometimes they are one and the same people, but regardless, you know, treat uh, consensual sex workers well and you will find an environment in which people who are being coerced have many more options and many more ways to improve their lives. Just to throw in some context, some listeners might not be familiar with these kind of bills that were recently signed into law by President Trump. So SESTA-FOSTA is referring to a kind of pair of laws. And uh, so FOSTA is Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act. And the Senate bill SESTA is Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act. So both of those, uh, you know, have that kind of panic in their titles about trafficking. And uh, it seems like the real effect of these has kind of been to, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong or if I'm, if I'm butchering this, but um, kind of take down what was called a safe harbor of, of, of sites that, that, that people, sex workers could go on and have some form of uh, like a, a buffer between them and their clients what it did was place liability on the third party medium the 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 host site right um and so therefore it was no longer uh it was no longer the best like it went, in terms of risk assessment it was no longer worth it for third party sites to host sex worker advertisement or potentially or potential sex worker advertisement and given that there has been not one court case 
uh, around using SESTA-FOSTA as a charge, right? What it has done, it, it, it is a fear tactic. What, it, what it's done is shutter all of these uh, advertisement sites that allowed sex workers to operate more safely and independently for years. Um, shortly after SESTA-FOSTA passed in March 2018, we saw maybe 20, 30 uh, sex worker ad sites go down. Um, and it means that, you know, the competition is not coming, you know, is not coming up to replace these sites. At first, we thought that offshore hosting was going to be our savior, right? But now we see, you know, there's all sorts of other ways for them to squelch uh, safe spaces for sex workers. The, um, the fear over OnlyFans um, and the bank companies uh, is an example of such. And that tactic has also been used to great effect uh, throughout the life of sex worker ad sites. Uh, one of the first big back page freezes uh, happened when um, a very, very anti-sex worker sheriff from Cook County wrote, uh, wrote this incendiary letter to a bunch of credit card companies in 2016 and had them shut down all business with Backpage. And so suddenly, you know, sex workers, low-income sex workers who probably didn't have a bunch of tech savvy, which, were, uh, which was a large proportion of the sex workers that were using Backpage at the time suddenly had to learn how to use Bitcoin, you know, or else starve, right? Um, so even, you know, so there's, there's so many different avenues to try to chase us away from like safer third-party sites. And offshore hosting is, doesn't provide the safety that we originally hoped that it would. Yeah, uh, I'm glad you brought up SESTA-FOSTA because it's such a fucking terrible law. And it's a lot like a lot of drug policy, which ostensibly on the surface, you know, it sounds like it's going to help people, but it ends up, you know, really harming the communities it's designed to, you know, quote, help. Like banning fentanyl analogs just made made uh, chemists and black market fentanyl uh, dealers go to more obscure analogs or even more dangerous chemicals, uh, you know, banning pseudoephedrine. Uh, in pharmacies so that people wouldn't make meth out of it, just had it, you know, move over to Mexico. Or uh, people found more dangerous ways of cooking meth. That's exactly what happened with SESTA-FOSTA, and it's just ridiculous. You know, what, what would you like to see happen with that? What I would like to see happen with that is for the legislation that I consulted on to be put before them to actually pass it. The, uh, it was with Rokana, the Safer Sex Worker Study Act. I mean, mm -hmm. we even I even consulted with Ayanna Presley on the um, that massive bill that she put together for criminal justice reform mm -hmm. that people's justice guarantee. You know, and these things have not moved because these are what we call sensible legislation. We need to study what the effects have been on people who are adult consenting sex workers. Our whole life and our whole way of being has be completely been changed. And it's because of that law. Y'all are supposed to be casting the net to catch a small group of people in sex trafficking. But y'all never catch that net in the other part of human trafficking, which happens quite a bit more 
and in legal mm -hmm. industries. See, this is the part that we never talk about. They always want to demonize sex. But they don't demonize these corporations that are making billions off of the backs of these people paying them below wage. We need yeah. a living wage in this country. Maybe if I didn't have to slave at McDonald's, which was a very coercive environment. Very coercive. If I didn't have to slave in there for so long for low wages, maybe I would not be in the position I am having to have work, sex work for 40 years. Yeah. This kind of goes back to something that Katie brought up earlier uh, about, you know, this is really a problem with capitalism, you know, that we have this system that forces people to have to jump for every dollar. And yeah, it's ridiculous. I think that that's sort of the broader issue there. We need a universal income in this country. It's beyond past that time. I mean, there are smaller countries that are doing it. They're talking about it would fail. How? It's because y'all don't want to give people equal opportunity and access. They keep talking about, Tamika, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Hell, I don't even have the boots on no more. I can't afford them. You know, do you know how much it costs to live in D.C.? Average rent is $2,300. Who can afford an apartment that's averaging that much if they're making 15 damn dollars an hour? That is such a 10 to 15 year ago wage. People need 2750 to live there. That's just to live in DC. Speaking of UBI, the first time I have ever taken more than a two week vacation from being an active sex worker has been since the pandemic when I've been able to get pandemic unemployment assistance. And every single sex worker organizer that I know who has gotten pandemic unemployment assistance has immediately used that money to be able to broaden the scope of their organizing at a time when it's desperately needed. Um, other than that, ever since I, ever since I became an adult, ever since I became 19, I have been doing sex work, you know, every week of my life until I was uh, 39. I mean, um, and I think, I think that speaks to what a quality of life improver UBI is for people. Um, another thing I wanted to talk about was just like, we talk about how analogous um, drug criminalization and sex work criminalization is. And there are so many analogies here. I mean, there's increased sentencing, there's the criminalization of paraphernalia, um, when it comes to sex work, for example, even though it was eliminated in Washington, D.C. and New York City in 2015, condoms are still uniformly used as evidence against any sort of public health best practice. You know, um, we see federal funding bans. We see, uh, we see the disproportionate effects on marginalized communities because these laws are always used against those who are most marginalized, right? But what we're, what we're seeing now that most uh, concerns us as uh, organizers who work on the intersection of sex work and drugs is that not only the tactics have become the same, but there is now beginning to be a convergence between the wars on sex work and the wars on drugs, right? Um, and so that's why Urban Survivors Union 
worked really hard in 2019 against the PROTECT Act, which was a bill coming out of Ohio that would have um, classed any distribution of drugs in connection to a commercial sex act as coercion and therefore trafficking, even if no force, fraud, or coercion were involved. And the presence of force, fraud, and coercion in a commercial sex act is the federal definition of trafficking, right? Now, what this would have done, there, I mean, there are so many hor horrific things this would have done, but I mean, it would have undermined Good Samaritan laws, right? Because sex workers who protect each other by using together would no longer have wanted to do so for fear that they would get a felony trafficking charge um, if they were caught together. Um, you would you would have had you would have discouraged sex workers from working together to protect each other. I mean, it's it in what we saw when we were advocating against this legislation is that it's so similar to other uh, bills that we see, such as drug-induced homicide laws. Because what these laws do is not only do they criminalize us, they alienate us and they isolate us, right? Because harm reduction techniques are about working together as a community. They're about us protecting each other when no one else protects us. And the, what these laws do is they disallow us from being able to protect each other in community. I mean, and to talk about just how broad this law was, it didn't even define drug, it could have been Tylenol, right? Um, and, just, and it wasn't selling necessarily, it was distribution. So if you were going, if you were two escorts going on a call together and you noticed that your friend was dope sick and you gave her a bag, you know, boom, that would have been felony trafficking. Um, and, and luckily, the PROTECT Act did not have much traction, and uh, it didn't move much after 2019, but we had heard some rumors of it perhaps being wrapped into the, the reauthorization of the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, and we don't think that this convergence of uh, the war on drugs and the war on trafficking, which is truly the war on sex workers, is over yet. I think we're going to see a lot more of this trend in the future. Unfortunately, I think you're right. The trend that I see is the conflation of trafficking with other language and other things. And it's just, <laughs> we're continuing down the path of criminalization when the people of the country are telling elected officials and making, uh, uh, doing local things locally to decriminalize things. You know, they're going in the complete opposite direction. It's time for those in Congress to be changed because they're obviously not listening to us. It shouldn't be this hard. You know, you're conflating language that does not have any business being conflated. Where in the hell do we get with trafficking with drugs between two individuals that are friends, that are coworkers, and that, and another thing is, like, the, the criminalization of trafficking is based on this idea that what trafficking survivors need is to have their abusers criminalized. What trafficking survivors actually need are resources, which it's very difficult for them to obtain. 
Um, so around this uh, campaign that the Urban Survivors Union Sex Worker Organizing Team did around the PROTECT Act, we uh, talked to members of our local organizations at length. We did all sorts of informal surveys. We talked to people, you know, either trafficking survivors or sex working survivors of violence, domestic violence, etc. And we asked them, like, you know, have you ever tried to access domestic violence or anti-trafficking services? You know, were you successful in doing so? What would an ideal domestic violence shelter look like to you, right? Um, and so many of them said that they just didn't have access to those resources that, you know, for whatever reason, even though, for example, even though uh, most, like, most domestic violence services that are federally funded are mandated to be quote unquote voluntary services. So you cannot ask somebody technically to detox in order to live at a domestic violence shelter. But they, but there are so many ways to get around this. You know, you have people, uh, you have all sorts of agencies uh, making safety contracts with survivors that are so unrealistic that immediately the survivor breaks them and then is kicked out of the domestic violence shelter. Um, and you have, and of course, in the U.S., you have this model that's entirely based on congregate housing, which doesn't work for most drug-using sex workers, right? Um, people aren't given flexible funding to be able to escape their abuser but stay in their community. Um, another thing is that, like, people are told that they can't uh, associate with anybody in their circle and that, me and that is most uh, implemented in the case of people like us, when our circle is seen as lumpen proletariat and therefore inherently dangerous. And so people who try to seek support from their circle are then kicked out of the shelter. Um, what people said overwhelmingly is they, you know, that what they were looking for was not the imprisonment of their abuser. Because what, what that usually meant is you know, then he would, they would be in even more trouble and danger when he was out on bail. What they were looking for was resources, resources that they could not obtain. It's a safety net issue. We don't have one that's functional. You know, nobody that needs shelter that's been in a domestic violence situation should be barred from having shelter for no reason. It's absolutely ridiculous. That is not helping them. It is putting them in harm's way. Here we are the richest country in the world and we do not have a safety net system for our own people. You know, housing is a human right. Yes. Living wage employment is a human right. I shouldn't have to work for $11 at McDonald's. That's absolutely ridiculous. How am I supposed to pay rent in D.C.? Then they say you're not working hard enough or smart enough. I have a degree. Do you know I stayed in that kind of environment for a long time because I didn't have the, 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 the resources to get a better job. I was a drug-using sex worker with a record. And I'm Black and transgender. Mm -hmm. Nobody wanted me. And then they keep pushing this idea that I'm not doing enough because I had to do what they said. If I didn't, the threat of jail was still there. You know, and, and when I had the chaotic drug use going on in my life, 
I couldn't stop. I stopped dealing with the court system. I ran away for years, way more than I had to. Didn't know the, the statute of limitations had run out. But it stopped me from growing. It stopped me from developing and moving forward with my life because of my fear of being locked up. I'm not no bad person. I'm not violent. I'm scarred, damaged, and traumatized because of the American way. Capitalism has made my life a living hell. Um, hi, this is uh, Christopher Moraf joining me. Uh, thanks for being on the show. Uh, sorry to jump in uh, halfway through. Uh, like leveraging the the housing uh, co uh, conversation you were just having, you know. I mean, you know, sex worker hysteria also bleeds into the uh, the, the traditional um, homeless shelter system, at least here in Philadelphia, where couples are separated, you know, and so th they don't. A lot of people don't go to shelter because they don't want to be separated from their partner, and shelters won't let men and women stay in the same place. And I think that's a, that's a function of this idea that women will be, you know, uh, engaging in sex work in, in, in the shelters, you know, and, and it's so, so it's, it's, uh, I've, I've encountered, it's heartbreaking to encounter people that are, you know, in love that, that can't, that can't stay together in, in, in shelter. And so they choose to stay on the street. I, I want to just um, segue from that and say, while we were doing all this research on what do uh, trafficking survivors and sex working survivors of violence actually need, right? We, you know, I don't want to contribute to the sort of American inferiority complex that the American drug users movement has in terms of Canada. But I will say that, you know, there are a lot of Canadian models that I really admire in terms of housing in that, you know, the Portland Hotel, Vivian House, et cetera, they have provisions within their housing system for women, for women and other sex workers to do sex work safely within those spaces. They have a sign-in system, they have uh, alert buttons, you know, and there, I recently was reading some research, some qualitative research on it, and, you know, the residents of those houses feel so much safer doing uh, sex work in those spaces than they do in a street-based setting. And I just don't, you know, and I, and off, obviously in an American context, this would be totally impossible. And I'm not saying that, you know, Canada is some sort of utopia for the lumpen proletariat, right? But I am saying that that model is better than anything we have. Uh, I'd also like to sort of touch on the, um, you know, because this in the drug using in the drug uh, advocacy uh, community, there's a similar sort of debate going on between decriminalization and legalization. Um, I know there's some sex worker advocates that that don't support the Nordic model. They think it actually could make sex work more dangerous for women. Um, can you kind of parse out the two sides of that and and what the rationale is? I wouldn't say some, I would say the vast majority of us are against the Nordic model because any, because placing any of the industry underground, whether it's on the client side or on the sex worker side makes things more dangerous for us. Um, there has been research that's come out that shows that the clients that are left are the, are more likely to be lawbreakers and therefore more likely to be violent because the clients that are law-abiding and are not risk-taking will probably stay in, that 
in a street-based setting, you have less time to negotiate with the client because they're fearful um, that, that, you know, people still, pe- that it's, it's, you know, because it's still going on in this shadowy nether element that people don't feel safe. Um, so yeah, I would, and, and unfortunately there's all this sort of like linguistic obfuscation around, uh, the Nordic model. They're trying to brand themselves as partial decriminalization. That's not partial decriminalization. That's simply criminalization by another name. Um, and I don't forget the equity model. They also call it the equity model. Uh, oh, wow. I've never, I hadn't heard that one yet. That's yeah, there's nothing equitable about it at all. Yeah. Equity is one of those nonprofit buzzwords that uh, nowadays I just kind of raise my eyebrows at seeing a lot of equity out there lately. <laughs> right. Right. We'll settle for equity if we can't get true equality. Um, another thing is like in terms of like legalization versus decriminalization, um, So almost all sex workers, all sex worker organizers are for decriminalization because we don't want a draconian overlay to our ability to do business. And what happens with legalization is just you create this unregistered underclass, which are always the most low income marginalized sex workers. It happened in Germany when they start when they decided to try to start registering sex workers. Right. Um, And so all. All that you have happen is the middle class sex workers who would not have been victims of criminalization to the same extent anyway, get to be legitimized. Basically, it's like the legitimization of the of like the economic sex worker hierarchy is what legalization is. And, you know, we see the same thing happening in terms of marijuana legalization, where Um, You know, the people who originally were selling the stuff, you know, um, black communities are now being criminalized for something that, you know, white entrepreneurs are like, you know, newly entering into and making loads of money on. Um, I think that legalization is always uh, a pathway into inequality and criminalization of the most marginalized. And my my take on it is how do you criminalize part of a transaction? Because this is a business transaction between two people for a physical labor. How do you criminalize one side? And then did they ever talk to the sex workers that live under this model? They don't like it. It's made their life much more difficult. It's made sex work for them much harder. It has driven pricing down. Ain't nobody get ready to go for that. We don't want that over here. That is nothing but another way to control sex work. When we've been asking and begging for what we need, and that is to fully decriminalize consenting adults to do consenting adult business. You know, why are we looking at how we can figure it out to still keep some criminal element to what people do naturally. People have a lot of consensual sex. They applaud men for betting thousands of women. But then if I'm selling a little sex and I bet a couple of hundred, I'm just such a little harlot. 
what what about that male that does the same thing? Only difference is he got to that end result by going through dating and all that other traditional stuff where I just cut to the chase because that's the end result. He betted a thousand or better. I mean, we know who that famous uh, basketball player was that bragged about all those women he slept with. I mean, <laughs> it's okay if you're doing it under the guise of just casual sex. But let me get some type of a benefit out of it. But then if you look at it, a traditional marriage is a sex work relationship. Uh, I'm talking about that type of a relationship where the wife stays at home, raises the kids, keeps the house. You know, my mother is an uber religious person, and I convinced her that her marriage was one of those types. She never worked. My father took care of her. She had her own car. She raised his kid, kept his house clean, you know, made sure the kids were well taken care of. He was satisfied with her, you know. So that's a relationship in that same type because he financially took care of her. But they don't look at it that way. It's the same thing. The difference being that because it's done under this heteronormative legitimacy uh, your mother doesn't suffer from the stigma sex workers do suffer from. <laughs> um, but then and I you, think you, were talking you, you can't say that about all marriages that ha- are on that traditional bank. You know, there are some women right. that have had to go through some things to stay with their husbands. You know, and then my parents are older and this comes from a generation mm-hmm. from way back then. You know, I'm not young. <laughs> oh, shush. You're a spring chicken. Um, I uh, I think another I think one thing that bothers people about sex work is I think it it, it kind of lays bare the conditions of capitalism, right? Um, mm-hmm. Capitalism likes to pretend that there are some things that can't be sold, but you know, under a capitalist system, really, where is the limit? What you know, truly, what can't be sold? Um, I mean, although it's true that. Uh, sex work predates capitalism by thousands of years, obviously. I mean, and that's another, th- that's another thing and another real parallel between sex work and drugs is that these are behaviors that have been with humankind for thousands upon thousands of years. And yet we think that we can create these structures to somehow eliminate them, um, which has never proven to be the case. And all it does is create, you know, an incredible amount of human suffering among the most marginalized. If I could jump in one more time, that's a great parallel because I tell that to people when I was writing much more about sex work in the past and now I'm more writing on the on the drug beat. But uh, when people would make arguments about the exploitative nature of, of certain, you know, types of sex work or any, I, I would say that's capitalism you have a problem with. You know what I mean? Like capitalism is inherently exploitative i mean is it any different to have a you know be mopping a broom at mcdonald's than to be you know engaging in in consensual sex with um you know for money i mean the, your problem is with capitalism not with sex work or any you know it seemed to be the issue um that it is inherently an exploitative exploitative system of of um government you know 
economics. Yeah, absolutely, uh, Chris. And not to generalize too much, because I know different sex workers have different feelings about this. And for me, um, I, I find selling sex to be equivalent to selling anything else personally. But some people, for some people, sex is still a special case for them because sex is such a site of trauma, because sex is such a deeply personal uh, realm for so many of us, um, that some people do feel like selling sex is qualitatively different for them. But that still does not mean that sex work should somehow be criminalized when other exchanges are not. Personally, I actually feel more exploited when I sell my intellectual talents because I identify my essential self more with my intellectual talents than with my sex, right? Um, but on the, but like these sorts of like philosophical and emotional considerations shouldn't come into play when you decide to create laws that oppress and punish, you know, thousands and thousands of people. Because what they boil down to is, is a matter of opinion and a difference of values. You know, I, I want to pose like a, maybe it's a, an impossible question to, to really pin down, but uh, one that one that I think about quite a lot, which is the the electorate, like the voters when it comes to sex work, when it comes to drugs, appear, you know, far ahead of their elected representatives. So we know through a lot of polling that that full drug decrim, you know, has a majority of voters supporting it and and that uh, legalization of drugs and regulating drugs is is quite popular, both on on the right and, and, and the left. And when it comes to, to sex work, um, we see similar things like two thirds of Democratic voters fully support decriminalizing sex work and um, the, and both drug decrim and sex work reform. Like the the age gap is like super predictive, like basically everyone under 45 is like uh not everybody, but if you if you split by age, like the the younger people are, the more they are in favor of um, reforming both sex work and, and and drug laws. And so, like, what on on the sex work side can really be done about this gap? Like, you know, I, I'm kind of taken aback by both Katie and Tamika. Like, the the kind of work you're doing. Sounds like you're lobbyists, like consultants, like you're you're changing laws and policy, both at national levels and, and state levels and, and local levels. Like, I don't think a lot of people know that about, you know, not maybe not every sex worker is like a policy wonk and a, and a consultant and, and doing this kind of um, lobbying but would like a mass movement like a mass mobilization be necessary to get electeds on your side like like what what's it going to take to to show them the way i'll start because i think tamika probably has a lot more to say on that because i'm a baby policy wonk when it comes to her i mean she just helped write uh, a piece of historic legislation you know um the fact that <laughs> The safe, se the safer sex worker study bill actually, you know, uh, was uh, co-sponsored by Bernie and by Elizabeth Warren. Is just, you know, we just we are not worthy. Um, 
But I will say that, you know, unfortunately, this is very bipartisan in nature. I mean, SESTA-FOSTA passed almost unanimously and in a bipartisan sense in an incredibly embattled Congress, right? And why is that? Because you don't, it's not constructed as pro or anti-sex worker or pro or anti-poor people, right? It's constructed as pro or anti-trafficking. And nobody wants to be tarred with the pro-trafficking brush, right? Even though the result of these laws are that more people are vulnerable to being trafficked. Um, so it's really difficult to change the rhetoric around this. And what Urban Survivors Union discovered in our first couple of legislative campaigns is that it's very difficult to do this sort of advocacy work on the legislative level because you know, like legislators are generalists, right? You you know, you're going to talk to an aide who has maybe read a one pager of yours, maybe if you're lucky, right? They don't know the ins and outs of the issues. And what they do know is that they want to protect their boss. They want to protect their, and they don't want to uh, get their boss into scandal. So one of the things that we're going to be doing in Urban Survivors Union is we're going to be focusing more of our work on an administrative level, talking to people in administrative government agencies that can change details that make uh, resources more accessible to sex workers. It might not be a great sea change, but it can change material things for sex workers more quickly. And these old, uh, you know, these old staff members who are specialists in these government agencies around things like domestic violence, around things like housing, have a greater depth and breadth of knowledge on these issues. And so we won't be starting from scratch explaining, you know, sex work, trafficking, et cetera, to them, explaining what the barriers to care and resources are. Um, and I'm not saying that that strategy is going to be incredibly successful or that it's going to change things in a drastic fashion, but I think it's a good way to make the small tweaks that allow for better quality of life for some of us. So that's like the, the unsexy work of detailing the bureaucracy, right? That, that's what that sounds like. And, and that, that's smart. I mean, it's, well, I, I mean, it, no, that's, that. It, whatever brings about material change and if it's working to, you know, incrementally to, you know, move the bureaucracy in your direction, like that's, that's important. Like, like that's a really smart strategy. What about you, Tamika? So right after SESTA FOSTA was passed, we had the opportunity to go up on the hill. It was a uh, advocacy day on the hill and there were a lot of people up there. And we made the rounds. It was a large consortium of uh, sex workers, advocates, and, and uh, supporters that went to have conversations with uh, several council, uh, several Congress members um, on both sides. And we went in to discuss what the hell it was that made them decide to vote for that bill and, and to pass it unilaterally across the board what was it and then to you know let them know how devastating it already had been because there were like immediate drops in income for people you know i, I i'm fortunate that i live in a major city where there's a sex work strip if i have to do that but the whole point is is that 
they sit there and say that they understood that it was about children and trafficking and sex work. And that's what made them vote for it. And I was like, well, did y'all even give any consideration to the consenting adults like me? Because I consent to be a sex worker. I always have. And I've never been trafficked. And I told them, in my opinion, if I was to ever say that I had been trafficked, then I would put it on my own government because of the way that they have the system set up. You know, but having had the opportunity to go up there, it kind of opened the door to me for me to be able to do a lot of conversations with members and, and some lobby work, you know, because I work with a, a nonprofit, I have to be very strategic about those encounters because I'm limited in the amount of lobbying that I'm able to do. So when I do have these conversations with them, it has to be something that's going to make some difference for people. When, 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 I, I was approached to have a conversation with Ayanna Presley about sex work deep from. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> it feels like my dream is coming true. That somebody is actually getting ready to do something that's coming out of Congress that's sensible. Something that I can actually stand behind, that I really believe in. Because it was sweeping changes in that whole bill. It wasn't just about the sex work decrim, it was how we tried to decarcerate the system. Take away some of the nasty that has come from these policies that have been in place for decades that have proven that they are not effective. But then, you know, I've been working with the uh, Sex Worker Advocacy Coalition here in the District of Columbia, which is the coalition behind decrim now which is the effort to decriminalize sex work. The Safer Sex Worker Study Act came right along at the time when we got the uh, bill announced again. And that happened in June of 2019. And we had a hearing in September, no, October of 2019. Lasted for a little over 14 hours. Monumental historic hearing. I have been the lead organizer on this here on this for the last three years. And big anti-sex trafficking organizations flew into my city and frightened everybody, scared everybody. But the local voice that came out in support of the bill spoke volumes. It scared our council members. And it's been, you know, kind of inactive. You know, COVID came in. We had some issues with Ron Campia around the beginning of the year trying to invade this movement and trying to force us to do a ballot initiative, which is something that we're balked at. Number one, we're balking at him because don't nobody want to deal with Ron Campia. No, thank you. You know, we never got the chance to really to address that because COVID came into play. You know, and it's been like <laughs> just keeping people's interests and in, in, in protected since then. 
I'm not going to say that we still didn't do some some positive things, you know, but it's been hard to think about sex work decrown when we've had candidates that were running for president that use that on their platform, moves quite a few of them. But since the election has taken place, it's just went dead in the water. You know, I mean, was that done just to drum up the people that you know support this to vote for you? Or is there going to be some skin on that bone at some point? But right now is the perfect time for it to happen. We are some of the most marginalized that are suffering the most right now. I spent a lot of time at the beginning of this pandemic advocating for sex workers' relief fund. No, Hips and No Justice, No Pride partnered on a, a, a fundraiser to get some money into the hands of the people that we knew were suffering right at the beginning. Street-based sex workers. We served the whole D DMV area. Anybody that came to us, we tried to give out two rounds of money before we, we, we let that fundraiser go because it just kept wrapping up with so much to do just for, to, to, to keep people safe and for them to survive during COVID. You know, and I ended up working with the Excluded Workers uh, campaign to get money for people in, 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 in formal economies. And that includes street-based sex workers. I wish I could have rolled drug users into that as well because I feel like I know people, I know when I used to get high, I used to peddle drugs too. That was part of my thing. I had to do something to keep a little money coming in, you know, when sex work wasn't happening. So I felt for them too, I know how a street economy works. And I know that these people were suffering when COVID came in because when DC shut down, everything shut down. That's where we're at is to, to, to push strategically from this point on with who we try to move when it comes to lobby. And I just want to emphasize just how bad it is right now because, uh, you know, the sex worker, the national sex worker community has suffered two blows or well, three blows in three years. You know, we had the passage of SESTA-FOSTA. We had the shuttering of Backpage or sorry, the seizure of Backpage. Let's not talk about it as if there were no active agents in this. And then we had COVID-19. Um, and the people who were most needy were the people who had the least recourse. You know, there was this ubiquitous directive from the entire harm reduction community for sex workers to just hop online. Now, street-based sex workers who were houseless and didn't have a phone, that was not a plausible way for them to deal with this situation. And now the pandemic, now there are, there are so few sites, there are so few uh, platforms for sex workers to advertise on, fewer and fewer every day. Um, and even, you know, these people who are talking to us about making online content, you know, uh, they should be looking at how under threat Pornhub and, uh, and OnlyFans is today. Um, I mean, so we had like a, a last minute stay of execution with uh, OnlyFans only yesterday, I suppose. But uh, as you know, just by following these trends through the decade like I have, I know that that's not going to be the end of it. 
Um, so the pandemic has been going on for a year and a half now. People are desperate on, you know, street-based sex workers, low-income sex workers are desperate at this point. The client base is so small. Um, and you've got to remember that so many of us are low-income people and people of color. And those are the people who, A, were hit hardest by the, by the pandemic and who, you know, uh, are least likely to be vaccinated. So we have people risking illness in order to be able to make their money. Uh, we have a market that, and we also have a market that's intensely saturated now, both online and in person, because there are so many people who lost their jobs uh, during COVID and for the first time turned to sex work right at a time when the market could not afford to be saturated. Um, there's no way to overstate to what, it, like, like sex work used to be uh, an economic safety valve, an economic survival strategy. Now it's just, you know, um, a nightmare market is basically what it has become. Um, and so sex workers' rights are even more paramount now. And as for sex workers who use drugs, with the advent of fentanyl analogs, you have people whose work schedule has to be that much more rigorous and that much, you know, and that much more profitable because you, the half-life is so different that people can't just make their money for the day and be okay for a little bit. They have to make enough so that three hours later, they're able to have enough to do another, to do another shot of fentanyl. Um, all of these factors have turned this into something that used to be a sucker for people, something that used to be a way for lump and pearl people to be able to at least tread water is now something that hardly helps us anymore. Yes, it's, it's become very difficult. You know, <laughs> how many more times can I reinvent myself? I'm 54 years old. I'm ready to retire. My body is not the same. You know, I'm, I'm older now. And OnlyFans was like that security blanket. I have enough video content. I can do one or two specials every now and again. But they've taken that away from me. I have people that are subscribed for reoccurring. I have not gotten a penny of that. And this is going on to the second month now. All of my income from that is gone. So how can I reinvent myself again? And I shouldn't have to continue to have to do this. I feel like I'm being attacked by my own government. They've done everything they can to shut sex work down in the guise of anti-trafficking. And I'm not a trafficking victim. And no matter how I try to tell them that this wide net that you cast has ensnared people that are consenting to be sex workers, and y'all just don't care. You know, that's how is this supposed to be the land of entrepreneurship? If I cannot be an entrepreneur, we have a thriving porn industry. Are they next on, on to be uh, attacked? Or do they grease the wheels up there on Capitol Hill enough? You know, I've, I've said this many times before, and I'm going to say this again. 
sex workers need to have a political action committee. Because mm-hmm. it's the only way we're going to ever get anything done up on Capitol Hill. Any sensible legislation for real people like us. Can I ask a question about consent? Um, you know, as, as a street reporter um, and street photographer, um, I'm often required to weigh in seconds whether somebody is in a position to truly consent when, when they're in deep addiction or, or certain. Um, do, does, does the, you know, the, the dual, um, there's a mixture of like drug use and, and, and drug addiction and sex work um, muddy the waters when it comes to consent? Um, you know, I often make determinations that even though this person is saying, yes, take my picture, it's okay, shoot my face, that I don't think they're really in a position to consent the way they would be if they weren't that desperate. Do you understand what I mean? Would that apply to me if I was high off weed? If you were high off weed, is that, is that what you said? Yes. Uh, n- no, I mean, I deal with a, I deal with an opioid using population, um, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, I do yeah. too. I do too. You know, hits. We work with all the populations in DC. We do ex- uh, deal exchange and all that. But I'm saying, you know, if I'm consenting to something, I'm, I'm generally okay with it. If I'm not being coerced into consent, you know, there's a difference. I could be high off a of crack. That was my drug of choice when I used. Okay, I could be high as a kite off of that. If I don't want to be bothered with something, I know how to say no. But then it, it depends on the, the situation and the scenario. I mean, people do, can be high and consent to things. I was more thinking the opposite. You know, somebody in withdrawal, um, you know, that, that's, that, that has no other recourse. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's consent on the face of it, obviously. But as a, as a reporter, I find myself encountering this Frequently, you know, you know, if capitalism didn't exist, then I probably wouldn't be a problem. So, I mean, we have to go back to the root of it all. And that is capitalism. Mm-hmm. I just can't go and, and, and have poppy seed growing in my yard to, to, to mine my own uh, uh, a heroin. You know, I mean, what I don't know what where it comes from. I don't know. I know what mm-hmm. it is when it's here and how people use it. Mm-hmm. You know, that I do know. I know about the needle exchanges. I'm an I'm a expert in that field because I've done it. You know, I've helped people. I exchange with folks that, that do injections for hormones. I cover all markets. But I'm, what I'm saying is consent is an individual choice. And whether I'm high or not, I'm going to consent if I feel up to it. Okay. Thanks for answering that. I honestly feel like that's kind of paternalistic, right? Because I think Tamika's allusion to the coercion of capitalism here really rings true. Like, if I was starving rather than in withdrawal, would you question my consent? Like, I think we only have a few bad choices uh, uh, before us, but that doesn't take away my choice to choose between those couple of bad choices. And when I look back at clients I took when I was in withdrawal, um, I don't I don't look back on it and say I had no choice then. I had no choice. Um, and honestly, I I was able to say no to some situations that I had a bad gut check about. Certainly, did I make yep. some decisions that I may not have made otherwise because I was desperate? 
yeah, sure. And I, and I quickly learned to rue those decisions. Um, but like people are always under some kind of stress or pressure. Why is it that the physical encumbrance of withdrawal is somehow uh, takes away my agency in a way that other physical encumbrances or other like psychological issues don't. Um, I feel like making drug use or drug withdrawal a special category dehumanizes drug users. It does. Yeah, I would agree. And and I think um, I think that, you know, somebody that's starving to death or that's mentally ill, you know, well, a mentally ill person couldn't sign a contract, say, and, and that was in they they could challenge it, you know, based on their mental state when they signed it. But, um, it's, you know, it's just I brought it up because it's something I have to encounter. And I and I frequently get into discussions with with people on social media about you know, what, you know, did, did they consent to that? You know, well, yes, they did. But, you know, and, you know, well, how much can they consent? You know, it's just, a, it's just an area that I think sometimes gets muddied up a little bit. Okay. So if it was me in that type of an instant, I would don't always have to use that person. I could just pay them anyway for their time, for them sharing with me and take that experience and use it as a story without naming them. You don't have to use the video or the image. I also just want to say that, you know, I, I this see, I, I read this as like a justification for in research studies not to pay drug users or not to pay them in cash or rather in money, rather only to give them gift cards. And I feel like it's incredibly infantilizing, right? Like, why do people think that poor people should not be trusted in terms of choosing what to do with their money? Um, And especially, especially if that person is doing work for you when they're already in this horrific situation, they're like trying to do their best for you while they're while they're in withdrawal like that, that deserves compensation. And, you know, the idea that like, okay, so then there's no legitimate way for this person to make money when they're in that situation, then that exposes them to like the only choices that they have are to to make money are like totally laden with risk and totally black market. Like, I don't see how that improves this person's situation. Like, how is that ethical? Um, it's not. And pay these people their worth. Remember, I'm the expert if I'm telling you about me and about my use and everything that goes around it. I am the expert, not that person that sat there and listened to me telling them my story and they telling you about me. Yeah. Pay those and people I, what they're worth. I find a judgment on whether I'm capable of making a choice or on whether I'm capable of giving consent that is decided by someone else who doesn't understand my experience to be incredibly suspect. Sorry, we're not uh, reacting at you. We're reacting at the concept. But um, uh, no, no, I just wanted to say I understand. I don't, I'm not taking it as a it's, it's a philosophical question and, you know, really, and it, but it affects people you know, for real. And I've had to defend things, you know, that I thought were, you know, perfectly open and consensual. And I paid somebody for their portrait or something and I'd get backlash, you know, it it happens, Um, you know, and, uh, and I think that it's, it's worthy to discuss just because uh, consent is a a very big issue today. And certainly it always wasn't to the same level it is now around sex and sexual issues. And talk about um, a a theme of Tamika's that I think is really important, which is that this 
you know, I think like a lot of times people equate sex work and drug use and the policy work around that as the, the analogy here is bodily autonomy. And I really don't think that that is the important theme. I think that the important theme is like marginalized people's survival and also just the decriminalization of poverty. Because if, if sex work and drugs were decriminalized tomorrow, right, you would still, so many of the people that my local organization serves would still be in horrible situations, right? Because mm -hmm. we have so many laws that simply criminalize poor people inhabiting public space. Yep. So, like the, the criminalization of sex work and drug use are just two tools in that toolbox. Um, you know, one of the things that we fight for the most around here is like these laws that take like different incarnations in different states, but they're basically the same. It's called common night walking in Massachusetts. It's called loitering for the purposes of prostitution in New York City. Um, and it's basically these laws that can give you a really, really low burden of proof for arresting street-based sex workers, whereas you wouldn't have that with indoor sex workers. And so it's like- It's a low burden of proof to arrest people for uh, of suspicion of drug use and for yep. possession. Very low. Yep. yep, or all those public nuisance laws, or, you know, the use of condoms as evidence, um, or like laws against sleeping in public, or laws, I mean, there in some states, there's pretty good precedent against criminalizing panhandling because, for example, the Massachusetts uh, su uh, State Supreme Court actually said that it was a First Amendment right to use your speech to ask for money. But in many, many uh, uh, municipalities and states, they've found a way to criminalize panhandling, right? Like, so You know I, how they did that? You have to have a panhandler's license. What? I've never heard that. That's crazy. <laughs> I mean, it, it's like... Exactly. It, so creating like a panhandling underclass, for God's sakes. Like, <laughs> so I mean, like if, if, if uh, drugs and sex work were decriminalized tomorrow... I would I would walk out there on the street and all of my members would be being arrested for trespassing. All of my members would be being arrested for sleeping on the street. Yep. You know, this is a it's it's a whole constellation of oppression of the poor that we're working against. And I think we really need to be aware of that. And that um, in, in order to really be holistic in our approach to this policy work. And, and that's one of the problems with the siloing of, you know, the drug users union movement and the sex workers rights movement, but it isn't just about those two movements coming together. It's about those two movements coming together and having a broader viewpoint. That is a really good point. And I think this is a good place to wrap up. Uh, you know, thank you so much Tamika and Katie for coming on and, and sharing your stories with us. Um, where can people find you on social media or online? Absolutely. Um, I am marginal utility we can link out to everything as well. And again, just wanted to, yeah, also say thank you both so much for being so generous with your time. It was, I learned so much during this talk, listening to both of you. And yeah, my, my brain is, you know, ping pong balls flying all around it. Just thinking about all the different um, 
adversities happening and and what could be done about them. So thank you both for for being so uh, open and candid. This has been really instructive. Yeah, I mean, I guess like as in always with any interview, I feel like there are 20,000 things I didn't get to say, but I hope what we said was helpful. So, and, you know, I can't ask for a better conversational partner than Tamika. So thank you for coming on with me, Tamika. No problem, baby. It's a pleasure. Thank you both. Yeah, thank you so much. Be well. Thank you so much for the opportunity to come on. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Narcotica, an independent production by Troy Farah. Christopher Moraff and Zachary Siegel. I'm your co-producer, Aaron Ferguson. If you like the show, you can support us by joining our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash narcotica. You can get some merch like stickers and more perks that are coming soon. A little goes a long way, guys, so thanks for helping us out. We're ad-free and want to keep it that way. If Patreon isn't for you, that's fine. You can help us out by just spreading the word. Tell all your friends about the podcast, advocating for social justice and abolishing the drug war. Rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Glass Boy, and Jenny Shea is the voice of Narcotica. Additional music is by myself, alias Nomad, drug-using producer. You can follow us on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook... We have an Instagram now, too. Those are the best ways to try and contact us if you have a suggestion, complaint, or just want to tell us nice things. SoundCloud, YouTube, Spotify, and iTunes. That's about everything. Have a good week, guys.